This special Christmas episode of The Week in Doubt is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download at www.audibletrial.com slash theweekinddoubt. Over 100,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. For many of us, Christmas is our favorite time of year, a time when whether or not you're a believer, there seems to be a certain magic in the air, a time for family and good cheer, a time to celebrate light and warmth in the midst of a season of darkness. But have you ever stopped to contemplate the origins of some of the holidays, stranger traditions and customs, customs that we otherwise tend to take for granted? That's what today's special episode is all about. From ancient Rome and Northern Europe to the Victorian period and beyond, this is Christmas, a brief history. Many ancient European cultures held feasts and celebrations to help ward off the cold gloom of winter and usher in the new year. For the ancient Germanic and Scandinavian peoples, it was Yule. The origins and practices of Yule are to some degree lost within the mists of time and debated by scholars. When tracing its etymology, variations of the word seem to sometimes refer to a Nordic festival spanning anywhere from three days to two months, centering around the winter solstice. In other cases, it's used as a month name. And later, the name of a 12-day celebration, the origins of our 12 days of Christmas. The word Yule may be a derivative of Yolner, one of the names of the Nordic god Odin. Odin was the chief or patriarchal deity of the Germanic and Scandinavian pantheon. It was thought that at Yule time he soared through the night sky on his eight-legged steed Sleipnir. Although a divine father figure, Odin was also considered fearsome and terrible. His nocturnal rides were thought to portend the fortunes of the coming year. In time, some of the traits of the fearsome Nordic Odin would become mixed with those of a particular saint to help give us the modern image of one of Christmas's most popular figures. One of Yule's most prominent traditions was the burning of the Yule log. Father and son would drag home the biggest log they could find and let it burn for all 12 days of the Yule celebration. The burning of the Yule log may have its roots in the burning of fires during Old Norse midwinter festivals. A good deal of the livestock were sacrificed at this time, since there wouldn't be enough food to sustain the animals throughout the harsh winter. The large-scale slaughter provided ample meat for midwinter celebrations. The embers dancing up off the Yule log were thought to represent new animals to be born in the spring. The religious significance of the Yule log to ancient pagan peoples is still a matter of some debate. James Fraser, noted author of The Golden Bough, stated that in the burning of the Yule log, the ancient fire festival of the winter solstice appears to survive. Robert Chamber, author of The Book of Days, is quoted as saying, Two popular observances belonging to Christmas are more especially derived from worship of our pagan ancestors, the hanging up of the mistletoe and the burning of the Yule log. Although some opposing scholars have asserted the burning of the log may have been a matter of practicality than religious worship, I would imagine it was something of both. Noted scholar Robert Simek 
referring to Yule's celebration, states that they had a pronounced religious character, although he also says it is uncertain whether the Germanic Yule feast still held the function in the cult of the dead and in the veneration of the ancestors, a function which midwinter sacrifice certainly held for the West European Stone and Bronze Ages. Eventually, over time, the burning of a Yule log or Christmas block would become a popular winter tradition throughout Northern Europe and the British Isles. Like Yule, the origins of the Christmas tree also seem to be partially lost to time, although it is widely accepted that many ancient pagan cultures venerated evergreen plants as symbols of eternal life due to their ability to maintain their health and verdant color even in the midst of the harshest clime or coldest winter. The practice of decorating with evergreens was popular among many ancient peoples and seems to have survived Christianization, at least in the case of Scandinavian and Germanic culture. The ancient Romans celebrated Saturnalia, a prolonged festival beginning about a week before the winter solstice and named after Saturn, the Roman god of plenty. Saturnalia was a time of revelry and gift-giving. Social norms were temporarily turned upside down. Usually sober Romans indulged in gambling. Masters even waited on their slaves and granted them freedoms denied them the rest of the year. One of the feasts of Saturnalia was Juvenalia. Like our modern Christmas, it was a time for adults to take joy in lavishing attention on children. By the first century, worship of the Persian god Mithra, or Mithras, had become widespread throughout the Roman Empire. Although not originally considered a solar deity by the Persians, the Romans associated Mithra with the Greek sun god Apollo and the term Sol Invictus, or Unconquerable Sun, a title associated with several other deities. December 25th was an important date for the followers of Mithra. It was quite possibly the birthday of the deity, or at the very least, a Mithraic feast day. A birthday is not the only thing Christ and Mithra have in common. Like Christ, Mithra too was thought to have been a savior figure resulting from a virgin birth of sorts. In Mithra's case, he supposedly sprang forth from a rock and was even visited by shepherds. With the rise of Christianity, the church developed a policy of assimilating rather than outlawing pagan customs. Since the actual birthday of Christ was unknown, the church eventually made the decision to make December 25th the official feast day of the Nativity. Giving the Christian Savior the birth date of a pagan solar deity may seem like an odd decision, but what better way to tame paganism than by Christianizing its customs and traditions? What we know of the birth of Jesus comes to us mainly by way of the canonical Gospels of Luke and Matthew. Two separate accounts merge together to form the Nativity story. Due to the presence of shepherds and their flocks, it is more likely that Jesus was born in the spring rather than the winter. Both Gospels place Jesus' birth in Bethlehem, but more specifically, Luke's Gospel contains the story of the census, Jesus being laid in a manger, the angelic proclamation, and the adoration of visiting shepherds, while Matthew's Gospel tells of the wise men or magi following a star and bringing gifts for the Christ child. Furthermore, Luke's Gospel focuses mostly on Mary and the events prior to Jesus' birth, while Matthew focuses more on Joseph and the events following the birth of Christ. Whether or not the two accounts can be successfully reconciled is a matter of scholarly debate. 
In the Middle Ages, there were two Christmases in a manner of speaking. There was the solemn Christ Mass of the church, and then the raucous and rowdy carnivalesque Christmas that took place in the streets. Drunken revelers went caroling door to door, being rewarded with drink at each house along the way. Similar to the inverted social norms of Roman Saturnalia, medieval revelers crowned a beggar or student, the Lord of Misrule, and peasants or common folk visited the homes of the nobility and the wealthy, and similar to trick-or-treating, threatened mischief unless they were treated to the best food and drink the lord of the house had to offer. English Puritans considered Christmas unchristian and yet simultaneously too Catholic. 16th century clergyman and reformer Hugh Latimer stated that men dishonor Christ more in the 12 days of Christmas than in all the 12 months besides. In the mid-17th century, the king's forces were overthrown by a Puritan Reformation movement led by Oliver Cromwell. In 1652, Parliament outlawed Christmas along with the celebration of other holidays and the worship of saints. In an attempt to enforce the ban, at Christmas time shops were to stay open and churches closed. Reformers renamed the day Christtide in an attempt to cull out the Catholic connotation of the word Mass. Christmas was not easy to contain. Revelers continued their Yuletide celebrations in thinly disguised ways. For instance, people took to referring to Christmas pie as mince pie. In 1656, people began to threaten that if they couldn't have their Christmas, they would see the monarchy restored to the throne. Shortly after his fate would have it, Charles II ascended the throne, and both the monarchy and Christmas were successfully restored. The Puritan settlers in the Americas were arguably even more orthodox and austere than their English brethren, and they were well aware of the pagan associations of Christmas. In 1659, American Puritans outlawed Christmas and fined anyone caught celebrating five shillings. Some colonists still managed to indulge in raucous Christmas celebrations, and records of the time even indicate a bulge in conceptions during the season. In 1712, prominent New England preacher Cotton Mather lectured to his flock, saying that, the feast of the Christ nativity is spent in reveling, dicing, carding, masking, and in all licentious liberty, by mad mirth, by long eating, by hard drinking, and by lewd gaming, by rude reveling. Not all settlers were as austere as the Puritans. Captain John Smith, leader of the Virginia colony of Jamestown, wrote a description in his journal of a 1608 Christmas he celebrated with his company. The next night being lodged at Kikouten, six or seven days the extreme wind, rain, frost, and snow caused us to keep Christmas among the salvages, where we were never more merry nor fed on more plenty of good oysters, fish, flesh, wild fowl, and good bread, nor never had better fires in England than in the dry, smoky houses of Kikouten. It's also thought that John Smith was the first to consume eggnog as a Christmas drink in the Americas. Following the American Revolution, customs and practices thought to be too English were shunned, including Christmas. On December 25, 1789, Congress sat in session and remained open just about every Christmas for the next 67 years. In the American 19th century, Christmas was reinvented. It was less raucous than the carnival Christmas of old, but it was not necessarily religious either. 
There were still some vestiges of the rowdy old carnival Christmas. In the 1820s, New York was plagued by unrestrained Christmas celebrations that degenerated into gang rioting, requiring an increased police presence. But for the most part, Victorian Christmas on both sides of the Atlantic was now a relatively subdued holiday focused on family. The general attitude towards children had softened in the 19th century, and Christmas gave parents an excuse to take joy in indulging their little ones with gifts. With the Industrial Revolution came a rise in class distinction. Christmas-themed stories like Washington Irving's Bracebridge Hall and Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol helped to address growing concerns over class inequality and materialism. Bracebridge Hall depicts the classes mixing harmoniously in an English manor house, while Dickens' A Christmas Carol famously tells the conversion tale of a greedy and cold-hearted businessman who comes to see the error of his ways. Although you could say Christmas had finally been tamed, some pagan customs remained or were revived, such as the decorating with evergreens and the hanging of mistletoe, the later of which gave usually uptight Victorians an excuse to kiss. In 1840, Queen Victoria of England married her cousin Albert of Saxe, Coburg, and Gotha. The German prince brought the Germanic tradition of the Christmas tree with him to England. An engraving of the royal family posing with their decorated Christmas tree appeared in both English and American magazines, quickly spreading the tradition on both sides of the pond. Although the pre-Christian history of the Christmas tree may be a bit murky, devout Christians were decorating so-called Christmas trees or Yule trees as early as the 15th century. The trees were originally decorated with perishable items such as apples and nuts. The evergreen itself was said to represent the eternal life of Christ, the apple, the apple of Eden, and holly, the crown of thorns. By the 18th century, people began illuminating their trees with lit candles, which were replaced by strings of artificial lights after the advent of electricity. In 1882, Thomas Edison's friend and partner, Edward H. Johnson, put together the first string of electric Christmas lights, but General Electric was the first company to sell Christmas lights commercially. In 1895, President Grover Cleveland introduced the White House's first electrically lit Christmas tree. Other Christmas traditions also came about in the 19th century. In 1828, Joel R. Poinsett, America's minister to Mexico, brought back a red and green plant which would come to bear his name. In 1843, the first Christmas cards were printed. The efficiency of a new postal service made the exchanging of holiday cards an instant hit. It wouldn't be a Christmas special without at least some mention of Santa Claus. The modern concept of Santa is an amalgam of various characters, both mythical and historical. Our modern Santa is based partly on the Dutch Sinterklaas, who in turn was based partly on the 4th century saint and Greek bishop, Nicholas of Myra. According to folklore, Saint Nicholas took pity on a poor man who could not afford a dowry for his three daughters and feared they might be forced into prostitution. Hiding his identity, Nicholas throws coin purses for each girl through the window under cover of night. There are numerous versions of the tale. Some have Nicholas dropping one of the bags down the chimney. In one account, one of the girls is drying her stocking by the fireplace and the bag falls into it. Santa Claus and our modern Santa also seem to be partially inspired by the bearded patriarchal Norse god Odin, who as mentioned previously was said to ride through the night sky during pagan Yule. In 1823, professor of Oriental and Greek literature, Clement Clark Moore, 
and the holiday classic A Night Before Christmas, originally entitled A Visit from St. Nicholas. Moore originally hid his identity, perhaps embarrassed by what he saw as the frivolous nature of his poem. Clement Clark Moore revised St. Nicholas's image. Moore's Santa was more elf than priest, a round and jolly figure. He also added other creative touches, such as the eight reindeer that pulled Santa's sleigh, as well as Santa's method of entering the house via the chimney, perhaps an echo of the St. Nicholas dropping a coin purse down the chimney in folklore. Moore seemed to weed out any of the grim or intimidating bits of myth associated with Santa. Gone was Sinterklaus's strange devilish companion, Krampus. In German and Alpine folklore, Krampus is a demonic-looking character complete with long red tongue, horns, bestial tail and fur, and hoof. He accompanies St. Nicholas and punishes bad children with a switch. Thomas Nast, an illustrator for Harper's Weekly, elaborated on Moore's St. Nicholas. Through his illustrations, he established many of the trademark characteristics we now associate with Santa. The red and white suit, the naughty and nice list, and Santa's residence at the North Pole. With his large girth and flowing white beard, Nast Santa looked like a wealthy robber baron. But Santa was the opposite of a robber baron. Instead of accumulating wealth, he gave it away. Another classic holiday figure was created when, in 1939, Robert May, writing for Montgomery Ward, penned the story of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. It didn't take long for the downtrodden childlike figure who eventually comes to lead Santa's sleigh to catch on with children. Evergreens, lights, gift-giving, and good cheer. Some bits pagan, others Christian. Whether or not you're a believer, there's something special about the holidays. For millennia, mankind has celebrated light and warmth during the darkest time of year, and hopefully will continue to do so for millennia to come. Thank you for listening to this special Christmas episode of The Week in Doubt.